Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Lauren, why don't you come on up, and uh, I'm going to pray for you, um, and then I'm going to get down and, uh, and let you go for it. So, God, thank you so much for uh, tonight. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, thank you for the song we sang that, that you are God with us um, and that your spirit um, is with us and, uh, and, and transforms us um, in, more into your image. And so, God, we trust you to do that tonight. Um, God, would you speak uh, to us and speak uh, through Thorn as, uh, as he um, talks about this topic that can be difficult and God, would you just open all of our hearts um, in to, to receive from you, open our ears to hear from you tonight, um, and Lord, would you just speak through Thorn, and um, God, I just do pray that you would um, show us more of your character, show us more of your goodness um, as we talk about this tonight, and God, would you um, increase our faith tonight, um, our faith in you, um, increase our relational trust in you, um, just do this um, for your glory and for are good because you're good and we know you. Um, and then I pray. Amen. Thank you, Kyler. Okay, so somehow I wasn't even on the stage and I think I might have broken this microphone. Uh, are we good? All right. Um, well, like Kyler said, my name is Thorn Winkler. Uh, I am a counselor. I am an elder in our church and I am terrified to give this talk tonight, y'all. Um, so I preached at our church two days ago, uh, not something I normally do, just a couple times a year. Um, and at this point, it just kind of in my life, I, I enjoy public speaking. It's not that difficult for me. But talking about sexual brokenness, and particularly we're going to be getting in on like same-sex attraction, we're going to be talking about gender identity some, uh, like I am coming into this with fear and trembling, like seriously. Um, it is really difficult to talk to a group of people about something that is this sensitive. Uh, something that, if you experience same-sex attraction, if you experience gender, gender identity issues, and you're a Christian, you have inevitably, I think, been hurt by the church and by people in my shoes. People who carry a Bible, people who talk about it. Um, some of them well-meaning. And some of them, not so much. So I am scared to death. <laughs> but with that said, let's get into it. <laughs> All right. So I've got a few audiences uh, in mind as I talk tonight. Um, I want to talk to two of you specifically. Uh, first audience I want to talk to is uh, anybody in here who is not a follower of Jesus. Uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't know why you're in here tonight. But I do want to commend you for the courage that it takes to walk into a room of Christians where you are may feel like you're the only one who's not a Christian, um, and you're doing Christian things. You know, you're <laughs> singing praise songs, you're listening to a talk, uh, you're hearing about uh, mission opportunities and training opportunities. Uh, it's a really big deal that you're here, and personally, I feel honored that you would come into an environment like this. And I just want you to know that uh, we are aware that you're here, and we're grateful for it. 
The second group of people I want to talk to are people who actually do experience uh, sexual and gender issues. Like I said, this is, this is a topic where there's a lot of tenderness, a lot of wounding, and a lot of hurt. You are the primary audience I'm speaking to tonight. Uh, as I was preparing for this talk, uh, the, the way I, I kind of conceptualized it was I'm giving this talk to you, and everybody else is kind of listening in on it. And so I, I hope there will be something here for everybody, but really, this talk is geared toward people who experienced uh, issues with their sexuality and gender. So thank you for being here. Now, for everybody here, I have one thing, I have multiple things, but right now, I have one thing I want you to take away from tonight. Uh, this is my thesis. This is the foundation for everything that I'm going to say. Y'all ready? It's this. God has made you a sexual being, and he thinks that is very good. God has made you a sexual being, and he thinks that is very good. God designed you to be sexual. God designed you to have desire. God designed you to have attraction, to have sexual impulses. So your sexuality, your genderedness, your maleness, your femaleness, everything about your sexuality, God created it, and he thinks it's very good. Friends, this is the foundation that we have to start with. We have to start with this if we're going to be talking about sexuality from a Christian perspective. Because if we don't, if we start out uh, from, a, from a posture of fear or from a posture of shame, we will inevitably lead to uh, all kinds of warped thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian and to be sexual? What does it mean to be a Christian and to be gendered? We have to start from the foundation of God created you a sexual being on purpose, and that is very good. And not just sexuality, like conceptually. I mean like your sexuality. Y'all are gonna get tired of the word sexuality by the end of this talk. <laughs> your sexuality is good. Is it broken? Yes, of course, everybody's sexuality is broken. That is what we're going to be talking about tonight. But fundamentally, at the core, primarily, you are a sexual being, and that is good. Okay, have I made my point clear? Okay, so let me tell you where, uh, where we're going tonight. Um, man, I could caveat this talk like all night long, and we could just do a talk of caveats, so I'm going to try to keep this short. Um, so here's my assumption coming in tonight. Um, I am talking from, a, uh, from the perspective of uh, the traditional Christian sexual ethic, which is that God designed sexual activity between one man and one woman together in a covenant that we call marriage. Um, tonight is not an apologetic for that. Tonight is not me explaining why that is the case. I think that conversation is really, really important. And I like actually enjoy having that conversation with people who don't agree with me. Uh, but that is not what we're doing tonight. So if you do differ from my perspective, which is okay, um, I'd love for this to be an opportunity for you to think critically. Um, I'm going to try to give the best Christian vision, uh, particularly for God's compassion for people who struggle with sexual and gender issues. Um, so love for you to think critically about it. I'm don't, not planning on changing anybody's mind on that, um, but I do want you to know that. Um, what other caveats do I have before we get going? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, so tonight's talk is going to be primarily, you can think of it as a roadmap, uh, a 15-minute roadmap for how to 
I understand sin. Um, this is nothing of this is original to me, um, but th- these are some things that I've kind of put together from different teachers uh, and scholars that help me understand sin, which then helps me understand sexuality and gender. Uh, so that is going to be the bulk of the talk tonight. It's going to be primarily like how to think about sin and different categories for sin. From there, we'll spend the last maybe third of the talk actually talking about sexuality. But it's going to be primarily kind of a theology of sin. Uh, and this will be a dense talk. Um, I'm not a funny person, and so I don't try to be funny on stage <laughs> unless it just happens to come out. Um, so this is going to be a theologically dense talk. Um, but as I was just putting this together and thinking about, like, so like, why does it have to be so dense? The, the thing that I kept coming to was if you struggle with your sexual identity or your gender identity, then you deserve theological precision, precision and careful thought. So we're going to put on our big boy pants, our big girl pants, and we're going to think hard. You don't have to be a Bible nerd <laughs> to understand some of this, but it is going to be a theologically dense talk. Uh, so get ready. Um, if you take notes, then get ready for that. I'll have some slides. Um, so yeah, so from there, let's talk about sin. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis 3. We're going to be there really quick, uh, but you can go there if you want to. Um, so Genesis 3, why there? Well, that's the story of Adam and Eve in the fall. Um, yeah, so Genesis 3, we see a couple of dynamics. Um, and many of us, if you didn't grow up in the church, you still might be familiar with the story. Uh, basically, I mean, you can follow along in your Bible. I'm not even going to read. Uh, so Adam and Eve are in the garden, and along comes the serpent who convinces Eve to eat a fruit from the tree that God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from. Okay. The serpent convinces her, and she eats from it. Even even says so in verse 13, and we have a slide for this. Uh, It simply says, this is Eve talking, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, that's a really easy sentence to uh, kind of gloss over. But I think that this sentence in particular gives us a really helpful and clarifying understanding of sin. And it says there's a two-part dynamic. You'll see the first part before the comma, deception, and the second part after the comma, action. Deception and action is present in every time that you and I might sin, whatever that even means. Deception and action are always part of sin. When we sin and when we mess up, we are both victim and perpetrator. I've got a slide for that too, thank you. Every time we sin, we are both a victim of deception and a perpetrator of action of sin. We're victim because evil deceives us into, th- into taking things into our own hands instead of following God. And then we're perpetrator because we choose to do it. We're victim because we can be pushed around by the forces of evil, which sometimes takes the form of other people. We can actually be victims and then perpetrate. I think, uh, I don't want to project my experience onto you, but... I would assume if you grew up in the church in America, you heard a lot about being a perpetrator of sin and not a lot about being a victim of sin. Now, being a perpetrator of sin, that is 100% true, but it is not the complete picture. And without that complete picture, we can fall into a way of thinking um, where we start thinking that we're in control of more than we actually are. 
One thing we'll get into in a few minutes is how our environment can impact the way that we relate to God. But this is the first thing I want you to know about sin, is that you are always both a victim and a perpetrator of sin. When you do something wrong, you are a victim and a perpetrator. Here's the second thing I want us to know. And this is a model that I got from a professor named Mark McMinn. He's up at uh, Wheaton College up in Chicago. Uh, he divides what we think of as sin into three broad categories. And when I first read this, probably back in 2016, this was so helpful for me, not just in understanding like sexuality, but just understanding sin in general. And uh, he divides it up into three buckets. You can put that slide up. Uh, environment, inherent brokenness, and moral choice. So one way you can think of is broken environment, broken people, bad choices. So your environment, your inherent brokenness, which has two subcategories that we'll talk about, and then moral choice. So let's talk about broken environment, uh, the first bucket we have there. Uh, great slide that Eliza made, by the way. I tried to explain this to her over the phone, and she like knocked it out of the park. This is great. Um, so broken environment. So I want you to imagine uh, you are going down uh, Millage for a jog, and it's a clear, brisk, like April morning. So it's not too hot, but it's not freezing like it is right now, at least in the morning. Um, so there's not too many people outside. It's clear. You have like the whole sidewalk to yourself. And it's, you can see well. And it's just like a really, really good day for a run. Okay, so that's scenario number one. Scenario number two, now I want you to imagine that it's the middle of July. It's hot outside. It's humid. It's the middle of the afternoon, so it's even hotter. And plus, that means that everybody is jogging down Millage, so it's like super crowded. You're having to like step over people and all this, there's dogs everywhere. Uh, and just to add to the analogy, imagine that every fraternity and sorority house is burning a pile of trash in their front yard. What's it going to be like for you to run in that environment? You're probably not going to be able to perform quite as well as you did in that first scenario. Uh, the, the point is this. Uh, our environment impacts the way that we act in the world. Our environment impacts the way we act in the world. In a better environment, we tend to do better. In a broken environment, where again, it's hot, it's humid, it's crowded, you're breathing in fumes from Lord knows what, it's going to be hard to be at your best. We'll get to how that plays out for sexuality in a few minutes, but I at least want to create that category for you right now. Um, our environment which we don't control. Our environment is something that we are born into, something that we're brought into. That's part of the, the victim part of sin. Um, we can't control it, but it does impact us. So that's bucket one, uh, sinful environment. Bucket two, we have inherent brokenness, which can be kind of subdivided into sinfulness and then limitation and disability. Where am I in my notes? There we are. Yeah, and so uh, some of you who are more uh, familiar with more theological terms, you can think of uh, that A, that sinfulness, as like original sin. So uh, original sin being we have a proclivity towards selfishness is basically what that means. Selfishness and self-protection. That's our natural proclivities. And then disability is, and limitation is exactly what it is. It's not inherently sinful, but it does limit what you're able to do. Uh, so for example, I'll use, I'll use myself. Um, so I have a very natural proclivity toward independence. Uh, I like to do things myself, and I really don't like other people seeing my weakness. It makes me feel really insecure, and I don't like it. Uh, so it's difficult for me to be vulnerable with people. It's difficult for me to be fully honest with people, especially if I mess up at something, uh, and to not be dependent on God when I should be. 
So essentially, it's a form of pride. Now, just because I have that proclivity, I can choose whether or not to act out on it or not, but that desire for independence, that desire to not trust God is still in me. So it's not quite moral choice because it's not quite voluntary, but it's still sin that, that lives inside me that I have to, I'm responsible for managing, essentially. Done with that piece of paper. So whether or not I choose to act on it uh, matters to some degree, but it's still brokenness and it's still sometimes sinfulness that I'm responsible for. So in this category, it is not your fault for the way that you are, but it is your responsibility. It's not your fault for the way that you are, but it is your responsibility to do something about it. Again, most of these things are involuntary. Most of these things, like, you're just kind of like, I, it's just kind of the way I am. Like, I came out of the box this way when I was born. Um, but it still is your responsibility to manage it, to surrender it to God. So that's bucket two, and bucket three um, is the most simple one, really, is moral choice. Uh, this is the easiest one to understand. It's the, just simply the choices that you and I make. Uh, it's fairly black and white. You know, I either lied or I didn't lie. I either cheated on my test or I did not cheat on my test. I either spouted off at my kids or I did not spout off at my kids. Pretty black and white, uh, pretty easy to understand, so I don't even have an example for this. Now, sin is really complicated because it almost always involves all three of these buckets. We're in an environment where evil exists, and we're born broken, and we make bad choices. All three of those exist all the time, which makes sin really complicated. And just even in the topic of sexuality, I feel like this, we'll get into more detail about this later. But I think one of the primary ways that people have been hurt by the church when it comes to sexuality is that we've dumped a lot of things into that moral choice bucket that belong in the first two. My, my intent in walking through this, and we're going to continue to walk through it, is honestly maybe to free you up to have some compassion for yourself, which will hopefully free you up to experience the compassion that God has for you. Some things that we do, plenty of things that we do, are our fault, it's moral choice, it was a voluntary act of the will. But there are a lot of things, particularly when it comes to sexuality and gender, that we don't give the first two enough credit for. That I think if we want to relate to ourselves and to others and to God more effectively, we need to have a good understanding of those first two buckets. So I was thinking of a way to illustrate kind of how all three of these can play out. Uh, so if you'll throw up this picture for me. Yeah. Nemo. So this is awful and shows my age. So as I was preparing for this talk, I, uh, I thought of this example. I got really excited about it. And I was like, wait, do these guys even know who Nemo is? <laughs> but based on what you, how y'all reacted, y'all know who Nemo is, which is really great. So 2003, the blockbuster film Finding Nemo came out. It was a thriller. Uh, most of you, I hope, have seen it. And so uh, what I want to do is uh, use him as an illustration for how these concepts can play out. And you also get a little bit into my mind about how I assess uh, people in, uh, in counseling. Um, so let's think about Nemo's story a little bit. Uh, so you remember how the movie starts? So it starts off at the very beginning, the Barracuda comes in and attacks Nemo and his family. Um, so, and all that survive, there's Marlin, his dad, there's mom, there's Nemo and the rest of the eggs. And the only survivors are Marlin and Nemo's egg. And if you remember, there's like the, the crack in the egg, right? 
So Nemo grows up, and Marlin is way overprotective of Nemo because of the trauma that Marlon went through. See, this is where my counselor brain comes in. Uh, Marlon went through this trauma and was like, okay, this is all I have left. I'm going to way overprotect him. So I don't know if you remember, but you know, like Marlon's like way overprotective. Uh, Nemo you know, wakes up and he's trying to wake up dad for the first day of school. Um, and dad doesn't want him to go because he doesn't think he's ready. And then when he gets to school, uh, Marlon's still trying to like helicopter over him. See, this is the in- broken environment that Nemo grew up in. Trauma before he was born, didn't have a mom, didn't have any siblings, and an overprotective dad. That's Nemo's broken environment that he had nothing to do with. He didn't create it. So how did that broken environment affect Nemo? Well, because Marlon was so restrictive to Nemo, what happened? Nemo rebelled. And this happens, I mean, you've all experienced this. This is part of the teenage years. I mean, I experienced this as a teenager. Like, parents try to control you, and so what do you do? Like, no, you can't control me. And that's exactly what Nemo does, right? Uh, Marlon tries to control Nemo, but just like any kid who's being controlled, Nemo set out to prove to Marlon that he could not be controlled. And that rebellion is evidence of Nemo's sinful inclination, that second bucket. And not to just mention that, but think about Nemo's limitedness. So from the injury he sustained while he was still in the egg, uh, he's got that little broken fin. You can see the big one on the right, the little one on the left. That's a limitation. There's nothing sinful about Nemo having a, a deformed fin, but it does impact how he gets around. I mean, you remember, like, he kind of swim in a circle if he's, not, <laughs> if he's not very mindful of how he swims. Again, this is not sin. This is just how he was born, and it's, it's morally neutral, uh, but it does impact him. And then finally, we have Nemo's moral choice. I mean, y'all remember what happened, right? Nemo touched the butt. He made a bad choice, he touched the boat, and that bad choice resulted in separation from his father and then a wonderful Disney movie, and we got to go on an adventure with him throughout that. So I think hopefully you can see that those three buckets kind of playing out in Nemo's story. You have Nemo's broken environment, which impacted his sinful inclination, as well as just his limitation with his fin, and then his moral choice as well. So what's the point of all this? Okay, so hopefully you have a good kind of understanding of, of, again, this is a very brief, woefully inadequate theology of sin, but hopefully it gives you some categories, right? So let's talk about those three buckets. You can throw those up there again when it comes to sexual orientation and gender issues. So just a little thought experiment. What bucket do they fall in? What bucket do they fall in? think you probably know that that's a bit of a trick question. Uh, They don't fall neatly into any one bucket, do they? They don't fall really into one. They fall into all three of them to one degree or another. See, there's the environment bucket, that first bucket. We swim in the water of a hypersexual culture. We're surrounded both by sexual permissiveness, which is a different topic for a different day, And we inhabit a world that tells us our sexuality is who we are, that it's fundamental to our identity, that your sense of gender identity is who you are. We live in a world that tells you that you have the right to indulge every desire of your heart. We live in a world where if you say that you're attracted to the same sex, but you choose to remain celibate, then you're internalizing oppression upon yourself. 
That's the water that we swim in. And a bunch of you guys, y'all are swimming upstream and y'all are doing a great job. But it's really hard. It's the water we swim in. In that second bucket of our brokenness, and this is, I think, the big one uh, because it's more individual. Uh, If you struggle with your orientation or your gender, you did not create that. It's not necessarily morally neutral. I want to get to some of that in a minute. But it's not your fault that you struggle with sexual issues or gender issues. You were either born with it or it developed as you grew up completely outside of your control. Very few people I know and that I work with say, yeah, I chose that. It's something that happened to them. You didn't create it. It was handed to you. You didn't choose it. Where it falls between those two things, we'll talk about in a second. But finally, there's bucket three, moral choice. And again, this one doesn't take a whole lot of explanation. Uh, This is looking at pornography. This is going further sexually with somebody than you know that you should. This is indulging sexual fantasies, all things that we, again, we willfully choose to do. And they can be behaviors or they can be thoughts. Uh, But ultimately, uh, they're things that, again, a voluntary act of the will is what falls in that third bucket. Uh, And so that leaves me with a question about attraction. So where does attraction, where does sexual orientation, where does a sense of like, this is just kind of who I am, gendered, how do we think about that when it comes to these buckets? And when it comes to repentance, which I know is a very Christian word, but I think is an important one to talk about, uh, it's very easy to know how to repent of that third bucket, moral choices. But how does how do repentance and attraction, how do repentance and orientation, how do those things relate? It's a really difficult question. Uh, there is a wide variety of, uh, of views on this uh, within, within Orthodox Christianity. Uh, so I'm just going to give you my perspective. Uh, you can be a fully Orthodox follower of Jesus and disagree with me, and I love that. That's great. Um, but I want to give you my perspective, again, because hopefully it gives you some categories for at least how to think, even if you don't ultimately land where I am. So within that second bucket, sinfulness, limitation, and disability, uh, I have worked with so many men and women who tell me, like, yeah, like, I'm attracted to the same sex, but I don't desire to be. Like, I, I don't want to be same-sex attracted. Or, yes, I struggle with my sense of identity as a man or a woman, but, like, if it's a guy that I'm talking to, they might say, but, like, I don't want to be a girl. Like, I don't want to have this sense of femaleness about me. I just feel like one. Do you see the the subtle difference? So earlier when I used the analogy for myself of, like, independence and pride as a sinful inclination, like, that is a desire to run from God. Do you see how that's different than attraction? And there is no third category. I don't have a slide with another third category. I don't quite know how to describe it. But the best analogy that I could come up with... um, Raise your hand if you're left-handed. Wow, quite a number of you. Wow, this is great. How many of you raise your left hand? How many raise your right? I'm really curious about that. 
It's like if I asked each of you who are left-handed to repent of being left-handed. Now, how would you do that? I'd be like, yes, like you, you could learn how to write with your right hand. And up until like 100 years ago, like that, they, some people in, I think, the, the South uh, thought that being left-handed was like satanic. And so like you were forced to write with your right hand, even if you were naturally left-handed, this really weird thing. Um, but you just, you can't make yourself right-handed, no matter how hard you try. Like it is just neurologically wired into you where your, your left hand is just what you naturally do things with. Uh, so, like, some gay people can develop attraction to somebody of the opposite sex. I work with people in what's called mixed orientation marriages, uh, where maybe it's a heterosexual uh, girl, woman, and a same-sex attracted or gay guy, um, and that guy legitimately develops attraction for his wife, and they can make it work. It's hard work, but you can make it work. Um, I've worked with people who, again, just pick on guys, so biological male uh, who has a strong sense of a female identity, who, who he, he, he can come to accept that like just the body that he's in and that, yeah, he's just going to struggle with a sense of female identity probably for the rest of his life. But there is no research in this area that shows that you can change your attraction or you can really change your sense of gender identity. Sometimes it happens, and I think that can be just a miracle from God. Um, but what we know from the research is that ex-gay ministries actually don't work. Hopefully that doesn't offend anybody. Uh, but there's been a lot of research in this area, and they just straight up don't work. Um, there is no proven way to change a sexual orientation or your gender identity. Now, those things are also, so you, there, you can't change it. You are a victim. It, you, it happened to you. It is also not morally neutral. Uh, again, you can be an Orthodox Christian and disagree with me on this. You might be right. Um, but when I read the scriptures, it's hard for me to come away with a sense that it is morally neutral to be attracted to, to be oriented toward something that is different than the will of God. It's a hard thing. I don't want to believe that. <laughs> uh, and again, you can be an Orthodox Christian and not believe that. Um, there's a, a Catholic doctrine called, I'm going to say it wrong, um, concupiscence, I think is how you say it, uh, that would say that it is morally neutral, um, and it's only simple once you act on it. I would like to believe that. Personally, right now, I just can't, but you can, and that's great if that's where you are. Um, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit. The point is this. While it's not morally neutral, you also can't change these things about you that just kind of happen to you. You can't really change involuntary attraction or your sense of self. So that's Thorne's theology of sin in, I don't know, 20 minutes. What time is it? I forgot to set my timer. We'll wrap up in a few minutes. So what do we do with all this? Well, I think what we do with all this is we think about what God thinks about, about this. And you can put this slide down. We're not going to come back to it anymore. Um, there's this word, again, it's a Greek word. I don't know how, quite how to pronounce it well. Um, splaknizomai. Splaknizomai. It's a Greek word for compassion. A Greek word for pity. Uh, literally what it means is... Uh, 
I feel it down to my gut. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, uh, by my count, which is Blue Letter Bibles count, uh, 12 times. Every time it's used, it's either about Jesus or if Jesus is referencing the God figure in a parable. How Jesus is feeling toward somebody who is broken and in need of healing. Splagnitsomai. You will not be quizzed on this later. Jesus feels splagnitsomai. He feels compassion. Like, you remember last year when the war in Ukraine started and you saw all these images of families who were separated, people who were injured, people who had lost their homes. And I don't know about you, but for me, like, there were some images where I just, like, felt it in my gut. And I wanted to do something about it. I couldn't. There's not really much to do. But I just felt it in my gut. That's the kind of feeling that Jesus feels for people who struggle. Uh, one of the examples uh, is Matthew 9.36. It is one of the main, if you're involved in a campus ministry, you know this verse. Uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. When it comes to any sin, when it comes to any struggle, this is the heart of Jesus for you. Compassion. Yes, of course, Jesus wants you to repent. But like Romans 2, 4 says, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And when it comes to the things like this that are maybe not morally neutral, but also not voluntary, how else could Jesus feel except that compassion? How else could he feel besides, oh my gosh, I see him, I see her. She is harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. I want to shepherd her. I want to shepherd him. This is the heart of Jesus for people who struggle with sexual and gender issues. So if this is something you struggle with, or maybe it's not this, maybe it's just another kind of sexual brokenness. We're all sexually broken somehow. What do we do with it? We bring it all to Jesus. Because no matter if it's the environment that you're in, no matter if it's things that are related to your brokenness, or no matter if it's things that are related to moral choice, Jesus saves us from it. Again, I think I'm afraid that some of us have an atrophied view of what Jesus saves us from. You see, Jesus came to save the world, including you and me, from sin and death. He didn't just come to, like, make you good because you're bad. Like, I suppose maybe that's true, but, like, that's only a, just, like, a small sliver of what's actually true. See, Jesus came to make all things new. All things. Jesus came to initiate the kingdom of God, which is redemption for all things. Even better than brand new. Jesus is creating a brand new world, far better than we can imagine. And that brand new world includes you, and it includes me. It's not limited to us, but it does include us. So Jesus came to save you from the toxicity of the sinful environment that you inhabit, of the sexually permissive culture that you live in. He came to save you from the sexually indulgent culture where, yeah, every desire that you have, you should be able to act on it. And if you don't, then you are just oppressing yourself or internalizing oppression that you learn from somewhere else. Jesus came to set you free from the inherent brokenness that you have, both of the limitations and of the sinful proclivities you have. Again, I hope you can see this applies far beyond just sexual issues but it definitely applies to those. 
Jesus came to save you from those. And Jesus came to save you from your own moral choice. Jesus came to save you from yourself and to save me from myself. Jesus came to save us from the choices that we make to run from God. Because just like Nemo, sometimes I know exactly what I'm doing and I still choose to touch the butt. Jesus is saving us from our own choices to run from God. And he's running after you and he's running after me. And he will always outrun us, every time. You cannot outrun him. And your own, <laughs> the things that you experience involuntarily, you cannot run him with those either. He is always initiating towards you and he will outlast you. Every time, he is not waiting on you, he is initiating even right now. He wants you to know that he has compassion for you. And he wants all of you. He wants your brokenness. He wants your goodness. He wants all of it surrendered to him. And yeah, he wants all of it. All your fear, all your shame. He wants it. All three of those buckets, we can surrender to God. And ultimately, over time, God will transform every part of you and every part of your environment. It's most likely going to be slowly. It's most likely going to be over a long period of time. And if you're same-sex attracted or if you struggle with gender issues, that might never change. Ultimately, I think it probably will. But in this life, it might not. But if you spend enough time with him, I do think your relationship to your attraction will. I do think it'll change. If you experience enough time with Jesus, I do think your relationship with how you perceive your gender will change. Maybe your perception won't, but how you view that will. You may accept it more for what it is, and you may even be open to seeing how God can use it. That goes for both attraction and gender identity. You know, one of the things that strikes me about how God can use people who struggle with sexual brokenness um, I've never talked about this without crying, so we'll see how this goes. I cannot think of a better example in today's world where we live of what it means to pick up your cross and follow Jesus when it comes to people who are attracted to the same sex and who decide to remain celibate. And for people who experience incongruence with their body and their gender identity. If that is your experience, you have every incentive in the world to embrace what the world has to say about it. There has never been a better time for you to just go with it. 50 years ago, it probably was in your best interest, just socially and culturally, to stay in the closet and to remain celibate and maybe live a fake life. That is not the case anymore. It is in your best interest socially and culturally just to go with it and to indulge. And so personally, I think <laughs> for me, the clients that I work with who choose to remain celibate or at least not act out on their same-sex attraction, uh, as a Christian, I can't think of much more that I can respect. I don't think I said that right, but you know what I mean. 
I think that's all I'll say on that. If you struggle with same-sex attraction and you choose to bear that cross for the sake of following Jesus, you are an example for the rest of us of what it means to follow, of what it means to not give in to the desires of the flesh, of what it means to put aside, <laughs> to sacrifice yourself, uh, like Romans, 1 and, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, climbing up on the altar, being a living sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. You can be an example of that for the rest of us in a way that we don't even comprehend what it's like. So if you spend enough time with Jesus, you'll come to believe the most important thing about you is not your sexuality. If you spend enough time with Jesus, you'll come to believe the most important thing about you is not your gender or your gender identity. Those things are real and they're important, but they are not the ultimate thing. If you spend enough time with him, you'll ultimately come to believe that the most important thing about you is that you are completely, wholly, beyond measure, loved by him. And that is your ultimate identity. Let's pray. Father, as, as we consider these things, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of brokenness that didn't even talk about tonight, would have loved to talk about addiction, pornography, would have loved to talk about abuse. Father, all of these things, yes, there is brokenness. Yes, there is sin. But God, would you help us believe that fundamentally more than anything else, you are moving toward us in love. More than anything else, our purpose is not merely to love you, that's important, like C.S. Lewis says, but our primary purpose is to be object upon which your divine love can dwell and can rest upon us well-pleased. It's true of us because of Jesus. And so we ask that you would help us believe it, live into it, embrace it. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.